Now, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13? And I want to conclude what we began the last time, biblical obligations to church leaders. So, verse 7 and verse 17, we have already looked at verse 7, but we will read verse 7 and then go to verse 17, Hebrews chapter 13. The writer to the Hebrews writes, remember, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, one thing we know so far in Hebrews chapter 13 is that this chapter is filled with Christian responsibilities or Christian obligations. What a Christian is required to do, uh, this is what this chapter is about. And all these obligations are to be shown towards Uh, others and by every single one of us. There is not one of us that is exempt from the obligations that the writer to the Hebrews talks about in this passage. For example, in verse 1 when he says, let brotherly love continue, he means of course by that that we must love in general, yes, our neighbors as ourselves, but in particular we must love our brothers and our sisters. That's what he means by that. But here uh, in chapter 13, These obligations are particularly designed to focus on ourselves, on between ourselves, one toward another, between brothers and sisters, between Christians, between believers. So first of all, to believers that we know, uh, like you and I tonight, we know each other, so we are obligated, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, to render to each other these obligations. Uh, But then he also includes, doesn't he, when he talks about remembering those in prison and showing hospitality to uh, even strangers, even those believers we don't know. We have obligations to ourselves, among ourselves, as a fellowship of believers, because we are brothers and sisters together, we know one another, but we have an extended responsibility and accountability to God, or obligation to God, even towards those that we don't know, should we uh, come into contact with them. Uh, like showing hospitality to strangers, as he says in verse 2. And he says in verse 2 that we should not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers, to believing strangers, he means. We have in verse 4 obligations within the marriage context, and in verse 5 we have obligations toward that which we possess, our money. And verse 5 urges us as a result in association with our money and probably also in connection with our marriages to be content and to not be anxious about many things. We do that, of course. We are content. We are not anxious by trusting God, by leaning on God, because verse 6 tells us that God will help us that God will never leave us. That's the promise of God and how, how true that is. Many believers have claimed that glorious promise, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. How precious that is to us. Now here, in these verses, verses 7 and 17, we have obligations to church leaders, a congregation, a group of believers have obligation to their church leaders. And we have seen already in verse 7 that we fulfill our obligations to those who are over us in the Lord in three ways. So if you look at verse 7, let's remind ourselves of these three ways. First of all, he says, remember them. Remember your leaders. Well, why should you do that? He says, because they spoke, they preached the word of God to you. They taught you. So remember them because that's what they have done. Secondly, he tells them to consider their lives. And by that he means look at the direction in which they are going. Where is their life going? What is their life like? Where is it leading to? Is there a consistency in direction? He says, consider their lives. Look at their way of life. And then thirdly, verse 7, he says, imitate their faith. 
In other words, follow what they believe, follow their walk as they submit themselves, the leaders themselves, to God. Now, the one thing about church leaders that is, I think, obvious to everyone, uh, and particularly to church leaders, is that they are required to be biblical leaders. In other words, uh, God's Word is their authority. And only God's Word is their authority. Not just biblical leaders to provide direction in doctrine and teaching, but they themselves in practice must demonstrate a godly way of life. Their character, he says, must be godly. And if their fellow saints, those in the congregation, are to remember them and are to consider the outcome of their way of life and to imitate their faith, then those are the things they want to focus on. If you want to remember, if you want to consider, if you want to imitate, then remind yourself of what the church leaders believe and remind yourself of their character, the way of life that they have. So you can see immediately that there is a twofold responsibility, a responsibility upon the leaders themselves and a responsibility upon the congregation uh, to follow, to remember, and to imitate, and so on. So leaders have obligations themselves to God, and they have obligations secondarily then to the saints. So my responsibility is to God, and my responsibility as a result, my responsibility flowing from that is to God's people. That is standard for every Christian leader in every church or leaders in a church. One thing I can tell you about it based on what these two verses say, especially verse 17, that it is a fearful, fearsome, awesome responsibility that any church leader has upon themselves, as verse 17 seems to point out. It's important to note also, will you notice verse 7, verse 17, and even verse 21, when he says, greet your leaders, that the word leaders is in the plural, and so it broadens and widens your obligations. You can't pick and choose like the Corinthians, what leaders you like and what leaders you want and what leaders you don't like. No, the broad obligation is to all your leaders, whoever they may be, uh, your obligations are to them. And so it is for all leaders then. On the other side, this applies to all leaders, that all leaders should be biblical in their doctrine and should be godly in their character. And how sad it is throughout church history to have discovered that uh, church leaders have failed, haven't they, in those things. They have, they have been abysmal at times in their doctrine and understanding of doctrine and certainly failed in their characters and their lives. So it's a fearful responsibility laid upon a leader simply because the leaders stand for God before a congregation. And the one thing I can tell you tonight is quite plainly and quite clearly that God is witness. And so it's a fearful thing. Just as God is a witness to your heart and to your mind and to your life and to mine, the same sort of thing. So this is for all leaders. There's no question about that when he says this in, to the Hebrews. And this is for all congregations, for all Christians, under leaders. It's for them as well. There's no exception to it. And the one thing about the, uh, I think, the instructions that he gives here in verse 7 and also in verse 17 is that he is, he is aiming at, this, uh, at preventing tyranny over a people. He is aiming at preventing abuse over people, and he desires that there be balance and moderation that is governed by the authority of the Word of God. Not abusing the Word of God, but using the Word of God for the glory of God. And the one thing I have discovered, I think, over the many, many years that I've been preaching is that a congregation knows far more than you might think as a leader. They are fully aware of a, a, a leader, fully aware of their character. They know their life. They can see their life. They can observe their life. They can listen to the doctrine, and the one thing they're very quick to, to grasp is that does their life and their doctrine marry together? And when it does, what a beautiful thing that is, but not only in the life of a leader, but in the life of any Christian, when their doctrine and their practice is in harmony one with another. So when we come to verse 17, there are five things that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, there is the requirement laid upon us, the requirement. What is the requirement? The verse says, obey your leaders and submit to them. The requirement, obey your leaders, submit to them. Secondly, there is the reciprocation, for they are keeping watch over your souls. They are keeping watch 
over your souls. Thirdly, the responsibility as those who will have to give an account. As those who will have to give an account their responsibility. And fourthly, the reasons behind all of that. He says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. The joy and the groaning being the two reasons. And finally, number five, the reward, for he says, for that would be no advantage to you, meaning the congregation. So, the requirement, obey your leaders, submit to them. The reciprocation, they are keeping watch over your souls. The responsibility as those who will have to give an account. The reasons, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And finally, their reward or the reward for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I want you to notice with me in this text that the writer includes both sides. He includes leaders, and he includes those who are not leaders in this text. So, notice his language. For example, he uses the word or the phrase, your leaders, obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch. So, obey your leaders, submit to them, they are keeping watch over your souls as those, and let them do this with joy, that would be of no advantage to you. Notice, notice how he, he, he ties the, the leaders and your souls and them and those and no advantage to you. He ties all of those pronouns and ideas together. Because what he wants to do in presenting this is not to present just one side, but to present both sides. That, that leaders have accountability and responsibility and obligations, so too does a congregation have responsibility and accountability. So there are two sides that are represented in verse 17. There are the leaders and there is the congregation. But the writer to the Hebrews really only desires one thing. He really only wants one thing out of verse 17, and that is mutual benefit. That the way leadership operates, or the leader operates, and the way the congregation responds is to their mutual benefit, is for their good. And so it's incumbent upon a leader to ensure that that is an end result or a goal that he, or she, that he would have, that the congregation made up of brothers and sisters, that they would be in one direction and benefit from which direction they're going. So he desires truly and really only just one simple single thing, mutual benefit. And I say to you tonight that the way you achieve that is through a solid exposition and preaching of the Word of God. That's where you begin. Because this place, the sacred desk, as the old preachers used to say, uh, not like today's modern preachers who walk over there and have a plexiglass thing and does, there's no sacredness about it. No, there's a sacredness to, to the pulpit and, the, and such things that we attend to. That, that behind that is the authority of God because this is the place where the Word of God is proclaimed. This is not a place to be casual or to be flippant. But this is serious business because the leader, as verse 17 says, has to give an account to God for the soul of the people who hear and who are under him. So mutual benefit, that which benefits leaders, and mutual benefit, that of course which benefits those who listen to leaders, all congregations. So consider then with me the requirement that he lays upon uh, the people of God. First of all, will you notice in verse 17, it is a twofold obligation. Number one, obey your leaders. Number two, he says, submit to them. And you really cannot separate these two ideas. They belong together. That the obedience and submission that he's talking about belong together. Now, they belong together for a simple reason. Obedience does not and should not have to be enforced. That's not the idea of enforcing obedience and thereby enforcing a reciprocal submission. That's not what he means. That the obedience is not to be enforced and therefore the submission is to be willingly and eagerly given. In fact, the end of the passage seems to point to what the congregation gets out of it. It would be no advantage to you if you fail in obeying and in submitting. And that's what the latter part of the verse, I think, uh, points out. It would be of no advantage to a congregation to fail in these two requirements uh, that are laid upon a people of God. And he says, let them do this, you notice the text, with joy and not with groaning. Now he means the leaders when he says that. Let the leaders, 
Let them do their work with joy and not with groaning. And so the actions and the responses of the people of God have a direct output upon a minister's life, upon a, a Christian leader's life. Now that's a remarkable thing because you might not know that or might not believe that or might not have even thought about that. But your response to a, a Christian leader, elders, deacons, whoever leads in whatever particular way they do, has a direct output on the leader's life. That's what he means by let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, let the situation, let the circumstances be conducive to producing joy in the minister's life and not a burden, not a groaning that uh, can also be part of their lives. By the way, both joy and groaning are two significant opposites, aren't they? They're almost like at the extremes. There is joy on the one hand and there's no joy on the other hand. There is this groaning. And so a congregation's responsibility, the writer to the Hebrew says, is twofold in verse 17. Number one, obey. Number two, submit. Now I know people get, get touchy when you talk about obedience and when you talk about submission. But you'll notice how he combines them. He puts them together. Because they, they, of course, belong together. They must not be separated. Now, it's probable, since he uses both words here, uh, obey your leaders and submit to them, and both words, by the way, are imperatives, so they are commands. So when he says obey and submit, he's, this, is not a, this is not advice that he's giving to a congregation. This is not something for you to perhaps think about and consider whether you like it or not. No, he says obey and submit. So he, in his mind, it is quite possible perhaps and probable that there were in the congregations of the Hebrews to whom he is writing perhaps some of those who were not obeying and were not submitting. And that's why he mentions it and uses the imperatives, the commands that they ought to do this. I think one thing can be said of these leaders in Hebrews 13 is that the writer to the Hebrews knows them. He was reminding these congregations of their leaders and the fact that he himself has confidence. Because if you don't have confidence in anyone, then it's highly unlikely you'd recommend some sort of submission or obedience that does not merit and come from the character and life and preaching and teaching of such leaders. In other words, he can recommend them. He can recommend them. Now, Christian leadership, wherever it exists, in a variety of forms, whatever it might be, is designed by God for one single purpose, to be an advantage to God's people. That's all it's designed for, to protect them, to care for them, to feed them, to shelter them, to nurture them, all of those words that you could think of, to be to the advantage of God's people. Now, just think about the false prophets in the Old Testament. Of what advantage were they to God's people? Zero. No advantage. They led them astray because they taught their own ideas, false doctrine, false messages, false teaching. They were not true to God. They didn't believe God. In fact, God hadn't spoken them through them and God hadn't sent them. They were false prophets. So they were of no advantage, of no benefit to the people of God. The only benefit that resulted was to themselves. And likewise with false teachers in the New Testament and false leaders, there is no advantage from them and there is no benefit from them. They eat up God's children like bread. They are like rapacious wolves that devour sheep without considering them at all. That's the false prophet. That's the false teacher. They're only in it for themselves and what they can gain for themselves. Now, the advantages of leadership is not primarily for the leader, but for the congregation. The privileges of church leadership or being a preacher or a teacher is not for the preacher himself, though we do derive benefit. Some of those benefits are spoken of here with joy and to produce advantage in God's people. But the advantages of God's people are primarily, perhaps I might say, for the congregation of God's people, those who listen, those who hear the Word of God, and good and successful, and I say successful with, uh, with care, to a large degree depends upon a willing and a responsive people. So church success and church 
uh, leadership depends upon the reciprocation that a, that a minister or a preacher receives from the people of God. Now, the writer is not authorizing or recommending some authoritarian kind of leadership. He is, he is uh, confident of these leaders that they are godly leaders. If you read what Paul says to Timothy about elders and deacons, or if you read what Simon Peter, who acknowledges that he is a fellow elder with the other elders in the churches, that the whole purpose of that is that it might be to the benefit and the advantage of a congregation of God's people, and that those elders would not be like wolves, but would be shepherds of the flock of God, true shepherds. So we must obey and we must submit to the authority that is placed over us, an authority that is not taken to a leader by a leader or a person himself, but is by God and from God and recognized by the congregation as being of God and from God. And so this authority that is placed over a congregation, we recognize because God's Word says that that's what it should be. And we therefore are willing to obey and to submit to it because it's supposed to be for our spiritual welfare and our well-being, to build us up and to strengthen us and to encourage God's people. What a sad condition if the preaching of the pul- from the pulpit has nothing to do with building up God's people or strengthening them in their faith or teaching them the, the Bible or the Word of God. Should such a thing never happen, what kind of teacher, what kind of preacher, what kind of leader would you have? And certainly God doesn't expect leaders to be tyrannical. He doesn't expect them to lead a congregation into anarchy and to be dictatorial. That is not... The character of a Christian and a biblical leader is not to be like that. The church father, Chrysostom, he said that a people who refuse to obey their godly leaders are like those who have none, and perhaps even worse. Perhaps even worse. I like what Paul writes to the Thessalonians, which is a remarkable little letter, you know. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, Let We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So ultimately you discover that the respect that is to be given to church leaders is because they labor over you or over you in the Lord. They admonish you and you esteem them very highly in love because of what they do, because of their work among you, because of their commitment to that. So when, we, when he says you should obey your leaders, that word obey, by the way, is a word that relates to persuasion. That they, that they are speaking and communicating in such a way that you are persuaded to do what they say. And isn't that the whole goal of preaching? The whole aim of preaching, to get a response, to produce an action, to get people to think about what they should live, how they should live, and what they should do, how they should behave. So since you hear and you receive God's Word through your leaders, obey what is taught, the Word of God. It's obedience to their feeding. It's submission to their ruling. That is the pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry involves the shepherding of God's people, the feeding, the providing of food, the saturation of God's Word being given to them so that the sheep of God feel like they've been driven to the waters and can just dive in and be, be satisfied week after week after week, which lays, as you can easily see, an immense responsibility upon anybody who undertakes to preach the Word of God, to actually do that to somebody week after week, to lead them, not just one person, but multiple people, to water and to refresh them and to feed them is an awesome responsibility. That's the pastoral ministry. So any man who should choose of himself to decide, well, I think I'd like to be a minister, perhaps has the wrong idea and should go somewhere else and cut the grass or wash the windows to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Nothing wrong with those, of course. My point is that what happens here What happens from anyone who opens his mouth to deliver the Word of God lays them open to God's examination and to uh, be accountable to God. So the obedience from God's people is not a blind obedience, but it's a recognized response. Now, you know, there are some leaders who would say, you have to obey me because I'm the leader. Like husbands might say, you have to obey me because I'm your husband. 
Okay. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not biblical at all, right? To demand obedience is not what the idea is here. The idea is a recognized, willing, desirous, eager response that is in obedience, that produces obedience to what has been received. Now, you know, if you are dying men and women who are starving for spiritual food, and you are led to the wells of salvation, and you are fed from those wells of salvation, would you not be rejoicing? And would you not be thankful that such is your case and your privilege? I would be. I know I would be. You see, it's an obedience and a submission that the leader has to a, an appointed office. It's not an office he has come up with. It's not an office he has designed. It's an appointed office by God Himself. Just like the priesthood in the Old Testament is an appointed office. Just like the prophet is an appointed office. Just like the king of Israel is an appointed office. Sacred, because it's from God and ordained of God. And therefore they, the kings and the prophets and the priests, have accountability to God and answer to God. So as leaders, we are required to obey ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our head. And this is what should prompt a congregation's response. As they observe their leaders in direct submission to the Lordship of Christ Himself, so too they will be energized to respond in like manner to such leadership, because their leaders obey Christ. One of the great privileges I have is to preach the Word of God, and the reciprocation of that is from your side to hear, not Russ Atmore, but to hear the Word of God. And that's all it is, to proclaim the Word and to hear the Word, and we, all of us, are just servants and instruments in the hand of God. It's God who has ordained that. It's God who has organized that. It's God who has established that for the leader's benefit and for the congregation's benefit. And this is nothing less than the pastoral work to care for the flock, to guard the flock, to keep the flock, to feed the flock, to satisfy the flock, knowing that it is God the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that accomplishes that and not the man himself and so on. Well, so much for the required obligation. But there is secondly this reciprocation, this reciprocal oversight from the congregation to the leaders themselves. So obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch, he says, over your souls. That word keeping watch means to have a diligent care and a diligent concern for the souls under their care. Verse 17 then, it is a spiritual concern. It is a spiritual watch. How do I know that? Because he says your souls. He doesn't say your bodies. He doesn't say your life. He says your souls. That part of you which is in one sense the eternal part, the immaterial part, the most important part, because your life comes and goes, your body comes and goes, but your soul is eternal and lasts. It is that which they keep spiritual watch over. So it is an eternal thing, an eternal work, a serious work that they are engaged in. And the leader is to have a diligent care and a diligent concern, so much so that in all of our preaching, we aim that the congregation recognize that their souls are safe because God's Word is being proclaimed to them and because the individual who proclaims it desires their care spiritually and their concern spiritually. There is that wonderful passage, Christmas time, which I might preach on next week or the week after. You know, the shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. I've often thought about that. How were they keeping watch? over their flocks by night? Were they slumbering and sleeping, pot of coffee going, uh, brewing away there by the fire, slumbering, you know, every now and again? Oh, well, I heard something out there. What was it? No, the shepherd is not like that. It's quite clear in all the shepherd passages in the Bible that the shepherd is alert. The shepherd is watchful. He's concerned about the wolves that come at the door, that are always prowling around, that always, even in the New Testament, are even in the congregation. He's always concerned about such things. He's fearful of such things. So he's on his watch. He's on his guard. And like those shepherds so long ago, he is watching over the flock. That's what he means when he says, keeping watch over your souls. So there must be uh, this spiritual shepherding aspect to the leader in the church, which which prompts, by the way, the obedience and submission. Because notice how he put it. He says, you must obey and you must submit because...
cause or for the fact that they are keeping watch over your souls. Your good and your benefit as a congregation should be in response to the spiritual concern that a church leader demonstrates and has. So spiritual care from the shepherd that stands before God's people is to be diligent care, it's to be conscientious care, it's to be selfless care, to lose oneself in one's work for the people of God, to give yourself up to it. That's what he is talking about. So the authority of a spiritual leader, not just necessarily a leader, but a spiritual leader, is exercised then in the light of eternity, because they are keeping watch over your souls. So obedience and submission is placed within the context towards spiritual leaders uh, because of their ministry, because of their labor, their spiritual care, and their spiritual concern. I'm remind, reminded of Jacob, you know, in Genesis chapter 31, when Laban has finally caught up to him. You remember when he fled, and he's had enough of Laban, right, and the cheating, and the deception. Jacob is like that himself. But he's finally reached the end of it, and he's, he's on his way back, because God has appeared to him again, and go back to Bethel, and where you made a vow to me, go back there. And so he's on his way back there. And then when, when Laban overtakes him and confronts him, Jacob complains to Laban, and listen to what he says. He says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, he says. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. How diligent Jacob was to watch over and care for Laban's flocks, even to his own detriment and to his loss. For twenty years I bore the cost myself, Jacob says, and the sleep fled from my eyes. That's a diligent watching. That's how God's spiritual leaders ought to be. Day and night, thinking, working, reminding themselves of what God is doing through His Word to His people, to be diligent. From Jacob's perspective, that's on a physical level, isn't it? This work that a spiritual leader engages is, is a spiritual work, totally different from a physical accountability and responsibility. So a leader is required, a church leader, to bear response ability for his people on a spiritual level. Why? Because God has invested authority in him and given him that responsibility. And notice that responsibility, will you, in the text. Look what verse 17 says, as those who will have to give an account. Now that should be perhaps sufficient to make any preacher get down from the pulpit and leave. As those who will have to give an account. Not must, not uh, uh, perhaps they'll give an account. No, they will, without question, have to give an account. So, just being in a position of spiritual leadership places the leader under the spiritual responsibility and spiritual obligation. The moment I open my mouth, Sunday by Sunday, and I've been doing it for years, the moment I do that, I am under responsibility to God if for every word, for everything that comes. So in the present tense, the Christian leader has this overarching responsibility to uh, watch the people of God, to guard their souls, but as far as the future is concerned, he himself is going to be held accountable for all that he taught and all that he said. In other words, I am waiting to give an account. And that is a fearful thing, brothers and sisters. That's why James said, in James 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Imagine the strictness of God's judging. Ima now, did you hear what I said? Imagine the strictness of God's judging. And then add, like James does, the word greater to it. Greater strictness for those who teach so how fearful and how frightening it can be to be in this position. 
Hugh Latimer, the, the church martyr, he says, How I wish that Christian ministers should abide by their flocks and by their sheep, tarry among them and be careful over them, to not run hither and yon after their own pleasure, but to remain by the sheep and to teach the sheep of Christ with the food of God's word and to show their hospitality and so feed the flock in both soul and body. I like that. That's 500 years ago, Hugh Latimer. He knew what the ministry was all about. So a minister of God's word has to give an account of his stewardship before God because that stewardship is a sacred trust that has been granted to him and therefore all church leaders are to be responsible to their office before God. That's the kings of Israel. That's the prophets of Israel. The kings that represented God and the prophets that represented God, they held sacred office and they were accountable to God. Not even Jonah the prophet, right, could run away from that obligation. He tried. The moment God said to him, right, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I give to you, up, I'm out of here. Okay, because he knew it was a fearful thing that he was about to engage in and God might be merciful. And he didn't want that, did he, Jonah? Or perhaps it's to think of Ezekiel's watchman standing on the ramparts, watching day and night for the enemy that is coming. And should that watchman, should you, Ezekiel, fail in your responsibility, know that I will require their blood at your hands. Their blood at your hands. So a minister must be a watchman over the people of God. He must fulfill his calling. Why? Because he has to give an account to God. Now here is where the writer says that God's people can be of help. And I need help. And all Christian leaders need help. So the writer now says, this is how a congregation can help God's preachers. He says, look at the text. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So today, people, God's people, can by their obedience and submission, bring joy to the minister's life and to the minister's ministry. I mean, have, do you... Would you like to do your work with no joy ever? You would want to take every benefit that could come your way to make your life better, joyful. It's no different for a preacher. It is a hard labor, day and night, spiritual watch. How do you do that with joy? You do that with joy when God's people respond in obedience to the Word. Not to the preacher, but to the Word. And believe what God says in His Word. So to lose your joy, for a minister to lose his joy is to lose his effectiveness as a proclaimer of God's word. Or to have your joy affected. And we all have our joy. We all know what it's like to have our joy affected by a variety of reasons. To have your joy affected or to lose your joy brings no benefit to anyone. It's of no advantage. So what he is saying here is, let their keeping watch of your souls be a joyful watch. Not a burdensome watch that you do with that they do with groaning. No, when a minister or a leader is encouraged, I can tell you without question, he's filled with joy. The work becomes light. Everything becomes okay in the world. But should it be the other way around, and not this is not what is coming to him, then he feels miserable and he feels discouraged and he feels weak. And the ministry brings groaning to him day and night as he thinks about his responsibility, which he cannot get out of. Which he cannot get out of, like Jeremiah and his call. You remember how David and his men had gone after Nabal, Abigail's husband, because of how he had treated God, uh, David's men. And so in 1 Samuel 30, he, lay, he left his he had left Ziklag and he had gone out and now he has come back and he finds Ziklag has been attacked. And his children are gone and his wives are gone and everybody else is gone. Everything's been taken away into captivity by the enemy. The Bible says that David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because all of them were bitter in their souls. But David strengthened himself or encouraged himself in the Lord. And where else does someone turn to if people will not help but to God, right? 
So David could only turn to the Lord and encourage himself. But how lonely for David when all of his people want to stone him to death, want to kill him. You see, disharmony in a congregation brings without question spiritual decline. Spiritual decline in a minister's life, spiritual decline in your lives. You see that word groaning, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That means that we don't start muttering ourselves. That the minister doesn't have reason to grumble and to complain and to mutter. And so a congregation has the responsibility not to bring despondency upon the minister and his ministry, but to call and to cause them to groan under the burden of the ministry. Rather, the responsibility that you have as a congregation is to build up church leaders, to hold them up in prayer, to pray for them, to talk to them, to communicate how you are growing spiritually and what Jesus means to you as a result of what you hear from the Word of God. It was Moses who experienced the difficulties, didn't he, of a rebellious people. Think about Moses. Whenever I think about church leadership, Moses is the man to go to because the people complained over and over and over again. They grumbled against him. In fact, they provoked him at one time that he struck the rock when he shouldn't have struck the rock. And do you know what that cost him? You're not going in the land, Moses. It was the people that provoked him to that response. Isn't it incredible to think then of Moses' patience with those people for 40 years to put up with their complaints? He truly was, as the Bible says, the meekest man in all the earth. And that's a wonderful thing to be, right? So this groaning by ministers or leaders, that would be joyless heaviness that makes the work of preaching and ministry laborious and tiresome and painful. And when that happens, the writer says, it is the congregation who suffer. It's not just the minister, but it's the congregation who receive no benefit. That's the last phrase, right? He says, that would be of no advantage to you, he says. No advantage to you. In other words, you would not receive the ministry of a joyful minister, but a, you would not receive a joy-filled ministry, but a joyless ministry. And why would you submit and why would you obey to such things? The consequence is not only for a leader, but for the people of God Himself. They would receive no spiritual benefit. So the spiritual lives of, of God's people, the spiritual lives of the ministers, uh, are intimately connected, aren't they? They're bound together. In fact, they're bound together tonight by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound by Jesus. We live under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, dear congregations, a very important point, because this is the day and age of anti-authority. We are anti-government all of a sudden. And yet, government is God's ordained authority. In fact, Romans chapter 14 makes that so abundantly clear, that all authority is ordained of God. They exist because God appointed them and ordained them. This is the day and age of anti-authority. Government is is abused by us and we heap scorn upon our leaders and doesn't Peter say honor the emperor doesn't Paul say pray for your leaders and yet we've somehow twisted twisted this obligation we all have as citizens to an established authority by God because your response to government ultimately is your response to God and if it's anti-authority it's anti-God because it's God who ordained the authority that exists. So there are these anti-authority feelings among believers at this present moment. But all authority comes from God. All authority. And so any response to that authority must be seen always in the light of what God has appointed and what God has ordained, the means and the end. You know, in the 60s, of course, the 60s were the age of the sexual revolution. This is the age of the therapeutic revolution. And there's a very, very important reason. Sex is related to immorality, but self is related to idolatry. This is the age, not of immorality, though it abounds everywhere, of course, but this is the age of idolatry, the worship of self. You know, at this very moment, the Supreme Court 
uh, is considering, uh, you know, the, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, 1973, the reversal of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, so that what is established will be the dismantling of abortion. I'm all for that. Completely agree with that. It's murder. And God holds us accountable as a people, right? But you know, in the, in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, there was a line, there were lines that were put in there that are very, very significant. And from these lines have come or developed the psychology, the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau from the French and from the Enlightenment down to the present day into the church. And it's there in Planned Parenthood verse Casey. This is what it says. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, to define one's own concept of meaning, to define one's own concept of the universe, to define one's own concept of the mystery of human life. That is an articulation of expressive self-individualism and psychological subjectivity regarding the self. That's why we're a sick people. We need therapy. What is therapy for? To make you feel better about yourself. Not about others. Never about others. But always about yourself. Anti-authoritarian feelings are the expression of self-will and self-desire against an ordained authority of God. And whether it's in the government, in local leaders, or in the church, it always is of no advantage to a people. And of how much more significant is the church? Because it is spiritual advantage we're talking about. Not just physical advantage. I mean, government provides us with many things. Protection, care, those kinds of things. But the church, spiritual leaders to provide spiritual care for God's people. The Old Testament, I think, is conclusive in saying that God is not pleased with animal sacrifices. He passes over sins. They don't take away sins. Bulls, goats, thousands of them were sacrificed. They never could take away sins. But He is pleased always with a sacrificial response by His people to grace, to God's grace toward them. That's what the writer here, I think, is urging upon these Hebrew Christians. If they rightly respond to the grace that they have received in Jesus Himself, then they will graciously always respond to those who minister the Word to them. And so if you understand grace properly in your own life, that it has come to you, you will always come hungry desiring to receive more of this gracious King who is good to us, who loves us, cares for us, as the Word is ministered to us, to each of us. So to desire these things is right and holy. To despise God's ministry is to despise God's mercies. So how does a minister, me and others, how do we fulfill verse 17? Number one, how do I fulfill verse 17? I must work. A minister must work. He must be, as verse 17 puts it, speak the word of the Lord. That requires labor, right? Number one, he works. Number two, he watches. Not only works, but he must watch. He must watch shepherd God's people. He spiritually must care for God's people because he serves the Lord. And number three, he waits until that day when he shall give an account of his work and of his watching. And so he waits and he waits and he waits. How do you wait? You strive to be faithful. That's all. It is required of a steward just one thing, that he be found faithful. All right, that's from the leader's perspective. But how about from a congregation's perspective? What can a congregation do to fulfill verse 17? Number one, you do it by your actions. The text says, obey and submit. So you obey God's word, God's authority. You submit to God's word. In fact, it's also not only by your action, but by your attitude, which is the submission part. Willing submission. Eager submission. Joyful submission. Why? Because you are under spiritual care. And thirdly, by your affection. 
you constantly strive and endeavor to encourage the ministers of God to stir up joy in their lives so that whatever they do is going to be fruitful and not fruitless so that God's people and God's leaders are built up in their most holy faith. The results will be, the writer says, to your advantage to be like that. You receive the benefit. You receive the profit. You receive the word. When Jonathan Edwards was leaving his congregation, he spoke about the responsibility that a people have towards their ministers. And this is what he said. Very simple. Number one, he said, be a happy people. Be a happy people. Number two, avoid contention. And number three, God against error. Be a happy people. Avoid contention. And God against error. So much so for verse 17. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. And thank you for these instructions in verse 7 and verse 17 of Hebrews 13, which lay such a burden upon all of us. Help us, we pray, to be desirous to fulfill these responsibilities and obligations with joyfulness in our hearts so that your people, God's people, would be built up, strengthened, nourished, encouraged, each one of us, those who have responsibility in teaching and preaching, and those who listen to the Word of God and serve God's people, as we all do. So may this be a, an encouragement to us. Thank you for your Word, and thank you for what the writer to the Hebrews has been saying, as he does say in verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we thank you for this day, this Lord's Day, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us this week in our work, that you would encourage us, uh, help us to take your word with us every day, and to chew on it and meditate on it and fill ourselves with it, so that we can be filled with joy as we do our daily labor. So we commit this week to you. Go before us and direct our paths, we pray. And may all the glory and all the praise belong to our God who is worthy of such things. It's in Jesus' name then that we pray. Amen. 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 May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.